This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. Sex trafficking is the most prevalent and lucrative form of crime globally. Here's some statistics to think about. It generates an estimated 99 billion, that's billion with a B, worldwide and profit for traffickers each year. Most of the victims of sex trafficking in Canada are women and girls. Indigenous women and girls are impacted by exploitation and sex trafficking at higher rates than non-Indigenous women and girls. And the money which is paid for traffickers is paid by the men who pay for sexual services from trafficking victims. The sex buyers, therefore, create a financial incentive for traffickers to exploit adults and children. My guest today is going to talk about a project that he's involved called Empower Men. My guest is Hennis Dolce, and he leads the Empowerment Project, which is part of the Mamawi Wichi Itata Center in Winnipeg. The Mamawi Center is an Indigenous lead community organization with a long history of addressing sexual exploitation and trafficking. My guest holds a degree in social work and not for profit management, and has worked in Canada and Germany in the mental health field, child welfare, and crime justice. He has worked with many men on topics such as relationships, sex and intimacy, as well as violence and exploitation. And he's witnessed positive changes in men's understanding of their own attitude and behavior. Hennes regularly presents at conferences for law enforcement, social services, and educators on the demand that leads to exploitation and human trafficking. Hennes Dolce, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you very much, Stuart. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So, Hennis, how does somebody find themselves working in Germany and also now working in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada? So, to give you a little bit about my personal background, um, I was born and raised uh, in Germany in uh, the early 80s. And then, as a teenager, always had uh, an interest in Canada ever since I was like 15 or 16 years old. And so by the time I was 20, I was able to come to Canada as a volunteer and uh, just spend about a year and a half here um, and just uh, getting to know the the country. And I ended up working in Winnipeg uh, downtown and really felt a strong connection uh, to Canada. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where that came from, but I was able to pursue that. And during that time, I really uh, learned a lot more about the, the struggles that some Winnipeggers, particularly Indigenous uh, people um, and women and girls face here. Um, and that led me to decide to go into the social work field. So I was able to study social work in Germany uh, a little bit after that. But I always also found my wife here. She's from Brandon, Manitoba. Um, and so we've been married for about 20 years now and uh, have established ourselves over the last couple of years here in Winnipeg. And the work that I have been doing um, prior to this project was really related to the criminal justice system. And a lot had to do with working with men who were either 
uh, involved uh, with the criminal justice system because of a domestic violence incident or with sexual exploitation. This was with the Salvation Army here in Winnipeg. And um, I had to learn a lot about the topic. I was not familiar with it at all. I didn't cover it in the in the university degree, but it was something that I learned a lot about. And uh, as I dove deeper into it, uh, really realized not only the scope, but really the harm that it has caused and is causing uh, still to this day in relation to uh, Indigenous women and girls, you know, and then I dove into the uh, topics why there's such a high overrepresentation. learning about the 60s school, the child welfare system, and those are all connected to this, right? And I know that you interviewed somebody from the clan mothers, uh, as well as my colleague, Melissa Stone, um, in one of your podcasts. And all of those agencies, and particularly Indigenous-led agencies by women, have really done a tremendous job of raising this topic around sexual exploitation and trafficking of women and girls. And so during my time uh, with the Salvation Army, I was able to meet with a lot of men who were uh, arrested for purchasing sexual services and really trying to understand where they were coming from without sort of um, diminishing their responsibility, but also wanting to understand more, okay, what what does somebody do or, or what is somebody's leading to, to this kind of behavior? And as I was working in the field, really realized this is a pretty massive issue and you you cited some stats globally and uh, it really impacts a lot of people and unfortunately it's not a pleasant topic right it's it's a sensitive topic it's a tough topic to discuss but i'm glad that uh, you interviewed me to talk about this a little bit more um, why this is important how many people are affected and eventually what we want to do about that as well so maybe that's a, a long answer to your short question but um, yeah, happy to happy to dive more into it as well. Hannes, thank you so much for for the background, sort of shaping how it is that you found yourself from Germany into Canada to Winnipeg. Delighted that you met somebody in your life from Brandon, uh, and that uh, that you've been here as a Manitoban. So congratulations on that, Hannes. One of the things that I wondered, just it's a, almost a definition, and I I went and I tried to research about the misconception about what is. And what is not legal when dealing with the sex trade? So one of the questions was, you know, what is legal? And it says the selling of sex in Canada is legal. The purchasing of sex is illegal in all circumstances. Do you have a fair way to clarify that? So in 2015, the Canadian government was required to craft a new law that had previously been struck down by the Supreme Court of Canada, making the previous uh, legislative framework um, unconstitutional uh, in the eyes of the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court gave the parliament uh, one year to craft new laws around the sex trade and the relating uh, activities to that. And for the first time, um, I believe in Canadian history, the law was crafted so that purchasing sexual services was illegal, uh, but not selling. And the reason for that is a lot of um, individuals, primarily uh, women and girls and, and uh, transgendered um, individuals, uh, do not end up in the sex trade by their own choice. There, there is a number, um, I would say it's it's the smallest number that really does it freely um, and, and fully out of their own choice, but a lot of folks find themselves because of poverty, because of trauma or abuse experiences that they've had, 
and the challenges um, that life has brought that sometimes they engage in this activity but are basically uh, often victims um, of sexual assault as well. And so the Canadian government recognized that and said, we do not want to criminalize people who are already on the margins. We do not want to make life more challenging with prosecuting or, or convicting the women and girls who, who are already struggling. And what the parliament decided was instead to focus on who are the buyers, who are those who uh, profit you know, for their own personal interest or gain, and uh, those those are the buyers. So sometimes the, the law that we have in, in Canada is called the, the Nordic model or the equality model. And it's sometimes hard to wrap around uh, the brain in regards to an activity that one side is legal and the other one is illegal, but it really focuses on why does somebody end up in the sex trade in the first place. And a couple of other countries have adopted a similar model and have really seen this as a lot of the sex trade as exploitative, not everything, but a large part, and um, a hindrance to equality for women and girls because the overwhelming majority of those who sell sexual services are women, but the overwhelmingly majority of those who buy are actually men. So it hinders gender equality, and this is one way of addressing that, uh, that uh, Parliament decided to do that. To sort of give an example, there are people that are involved in the sex trade world who are doing it on the basis that it is part of their profession. And, you know, they might put themselves in a position where they say, if there's consensual sexual services or an erotic performance, you know, there's a cost to it and there could be an arrangement made between those two people, that would be deemed to be legal. Is that correct? In terms of the law, if somebody purchases sexual services, it would still be illegal, even if the other side or the seller, so to speak, fully consents to it and does it by, by their own uh, choice. So the law does not differentiate in that. However, whether a police agency will you know, enforce the laws accordingly that's an entirely different story. And that is very different across the country, depending on the city and depending on the priority of that. But I, I think, you know, one thing that we have to recognize here in Manitoba, a lot, a lot of folks that are uh, exploited through sort of what I would call survival sex or sexual exploitation are unfortunately indigenous women and girls, sometimes newcomers, and those with experiences in the child welfare system, trauma, 60 scoop survivors. And that is really a very vulnerable group to begin with, right? Um, and I think for those folks, for those communities and groups, I think that's what the law was crafted for, to protect them. Now, sometimes it's a very contentious topic in certain circles. And I know that there's groups who wish to change the laws uh, accordingly. But I think we have to recognize that, especially for young people, exploitation is a reality. And it's hard to find stats, but the Manitoba government website says that there could be anywhere between hundreds, if not thousands of young people, meaning children and youth, being sexually exploited here just in Manitoba alone, which is a staggering number, you know, when you think about that. Yeah, it is staggering, you know, Hennis. And I think one of the elements and you've been involved in this, and there's a lot of other people. I know the Joy Smith Foundation, and there's a lot of very, very good work that is done to educate people on the issue of uh, sexual trafficking. Because I, I think a lot of times people look at it and say that it's a, 
a big city problem. It's a, a problem over in Europe. It's a problem somewhere else. When, as you and I talked about earlier, the reality is that it could be happening next door here in Winnipeg. I mean, it's that domestic. Yes, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned the Joy Smith Foundation, and they just came out with a new uh, campaign called the Trafficking Signs. And there's the, uh, the the notion that this could be happening within a kilometer of where you, we are right now. And, you know, speaking to folks from the RCMP, for example, there's a challenge of trafficking happening sort of in a north-south corridor uh, from the northern communities and rural communities down into the city where, you know, young people come for medical appointments or sometimes for schooling, and that makes them very vulnerable, um, especially if they're uh, in the city for the first time and they may not have close connections here. And unfortunately, predators and people who are out to to look for, the, you know, young, vulnerable people uh, take advantage of that, you know. So you're absolutely right. It's not something that happens just over there in the U.S. or in Asia somewhere, but it's a local reality as well. Yeah. So, Hedis, let's drive in, or dive, I should say, into Empower Men. What is Empower Men and how did it start? Well, I have to go back a little bit to the beginnings when uh, Diane Retzguy, who was uh, the uh, executive director for the Mama Wichita Center and a long, long time advocate uh, who's been working on this for probably decades now. And uh, together we discussed the issue of exploitation and said, how do we engage a wider public audience and particularly men and boys in this topic? Um, often the focus has been on helping victims, um, you know, helping police understand the issue of exploitation and what the justice system can do. And often it's been done by women for women, you know, and I really credit particularly indigenous women um, like the clan mothers, Kaniganichak, um, Joy Smith Foundation, and Diane Redsky for really raising this issue. Sometimes what is missing is the leadership of males in this space. And that's really where we wanted to expand the focus uh, is how do we engage men and boys, young men in this topic as well, because like I said, it is a highly gendered issue. And so recognizing that if we wanted to make a change, men need to step up in this as well. Being informed about it and um, also understanding the issue and seeing, you know, if we're in a position of either leadership or influence, which most of us are, even if it's just within our circle of friends or, or colleagues to say prostitution and, and, and exploitation is to a large degree exploitative. And we as, as men have a role in that. So that's how we sort of started. And then we came up with sort of six areas uh, that we wanted to focus on to highlight uh, the role that men can play. So we see men not only as sort of the perpetrators or those who are part of the problem, but we really see them as part of the solution as well, because it is it is really preventable which then leads to helping us understand, okay, what's the man, what's man's reasoning or, or explanation for, for doing this? So some of the areas that we've started to work on in the Empowerment Project is education and awareness about this topic specifically uh, as it relates to men. So we've done a number uh, of training and uh, conference events for educators and people in the youth-serving agencies, social services, working with newcomer agencies about this topic as well. 
Um, we're also using some new technology regarding the online engagement. When somebody is looking to purchase sexual services online, there's been a huge shift with the development of technology that allows now for you know escort websites that are often used uh, for trafficking as well to uh, advertise sexual services as well, sometimes from trafficking victims. So we're using some AI technology, which is really exciting and innovative. And the focus is really to help men understand what are they looking for and helping them understand that the way that they're going about it may not be the best way for them or or certainly not for the community around them. We're also looking to uh, understand on a deeper level the reasons of men's attitude as well as behaviors with some research uh, conducted with the University of Manitoba. So we're just in the process of developing a survey that will then be promoting um, online in different spaces um, because we want to hear from men, you know, what, what are their reasons for doing this and how that can inform potential support services for them as well. Because for the most part, the, the men that we're talking about they're not sort of your hardened criminal. They're regular guys that go to work, that have families. And this is sort of their, not to minimize it, this is their little hobby on the side, you know. So we want to engage with them. We want to learn more about them. Another area is uh, partnering with law enforcement um, on training and uh, just engagement with them. So police, um, crown attorneys, and, and policy uh, decision makers, because we believe that there is a role. It is not the only role that they have, um, but we believe that this is an important um, aspect as well. So doing trainings um, and really focusing on uh, survivor voices. Uh, the leadership of survivors is very important to us. We have a consultation committee uh, that we've created that speaks into those things that we're discussing that are all survivors that have uh, been either trafficked or have come out of sexual exploitation and have done a lot of healing and are now giving us advice on how to do this uh, in a proper way. And overall, it's creating a sense of men to step into this discussion and say, we have a responsibility as well, and we can do something about that. So that it's not only left up to, to women uh, and girls to change the narrative around this, but for men to be able to step in. So we're still fairly early on uh, in the project, only about a little over a year in. So um, we continue to build partnerships and trainings. And um, it's it's really quite exciting, even though it is a, is a hard topic and not everybody's comfortable talking about it. But I think we're we're at a point where we've seen increase in not only exploitation and trafficking, but also sexual assault, the use of online exploitation, sextortion, all of these topics that have, have increased both in statistical numbers as well as just in the impact. So I think we we really need to do something. And, and I believe that we need to step up as a community and as a society to do that. So Hannes, the lots there to unpack, just you, you gave a really great uh, narrative timeline of some of the things that are happening. You talked about the use of technology, specifically AI technology. Can you give me an example? If somebody were to go onto a site and they were going onto a site for one reason, and that is to, to buy sex, is there a way that that could be tracked? And that person, I should say, who is looking to make the purchase, can he then, and I'm assuming it's a man, so I say he, can that person be sort of tracked and stopped and then brought into a position where you can say, look, we understand what you're trying to do. Before you make this purchase, we want to let you know we've been tracking you. 
and what you're about to do is illegal. And so we're going to offer you some assistance to ensure that you don't go down this road again, or you don't enter into what could be criminal activity. It's close to how you described it. So the way we have set it up is that there are these escort listings on different classified websites, and there is many, many, many. And uh, over the last couple of years, many uh, have popped up. So we place ads on these websites that are just very generic ads, and there's a phone number attached to that ad. And if a person, let's say a man, reaches out, then we use the technology to engage with the man in a conversation. And so we're partnering with an organization to do that. And initially, when they set this up, you know, the focus was on highlighting the, the negative impacts of sexual exploitation and, and sex buying, et cetera. But um, we quickly re realized that this may not be the best way to engage with somebody in that through that method, partly because I think men realize that it may not be the best thing to do, but they do it anyway. So how can we take a different approach? So looking at some aspects of motivational interviewing and trying to build a level of rapport to say, what are you looking for here? So it, in a sense, it is not tracking somebody, but trying to engage in a conversation around what are you looking for? Are, are you looking for intimacy? Are you looking for a, a sense of connection? That's the case for some, not so much for others. And really highlighting that what they're trying to look for isn't what they're trying to achieve. And this is very much in line with what I heard from a lot of men uh, when I was working with them in the sex buyer accountability program was that, you know, what they were looking for, it didn't materialize at the end. Um, and sometimes people said, well, I'm glad I was stopped because it led me down a path that I wasn't really happy with to do that. So the technology allows us to engage with men. And then there's a volunteer often connected to provide some ongoing supports for that. So it is really about helping men understand their own sort of internal dynamics. You know, am I stressed? Am I having a bad day at work? Are there relationship issues? And it's not counseling, but it's just trying to shift the focus and shift the perspective of that person to realize, hey, you're going down a path that isn't really going to be helpful, just as maybe having a couple of beers after you get home isn't helpful if you are struggling with something else in your life, right? Uh, it may give you a temporary relief, but you're not going to fix whatever is happening in your life. So that's sort of the angle that we've taken. And the uh, the interesting part is that a fair amount of men respond very well to that and realize, hey, this isn't some judgmental aspect of it, but it is trying to to help me understand where I may, you know, turn off the wrong wrong direction here in my life. There is a component where we also talk about the impact, but it is primarily helping men understand themselves better. And and I think trying to find that balance between discouraging because it it impacts others in a negative way but also not negating that somebody might have a personal reasons for doing something like this, right? So holding that tension be between accountability and support is something that we've tried to do in conceptualizing both the work through the AI as well as the other elements uh, within the project. Hennis, you mentioned a program. I hope I can get it sort of right. I just want to get an explanation of what it's for. You talked about, I think it's the sexuality behavior project, I think you said. 
Yeah. So this is uh, with the Salvation Army here in Winnipeg. I call it the Sex Buyer Accountability Program. Sex some Buyer people, Accountability. Okay. Yeah. Some people, we used to call it the John School. I'm not too fond of that term anymore, just because it has a bit of a colloquial term, the term John, which is generally used, right? But I think it under it underrepresents the involvement and the impact that this group of people has that that are the Johns. So. So I'm not using that term anymore, but you know other people do, and that's totally okay. But it's focusing on that level of accountability that I think we need to have if we want to address the issue of trafficking. Because like you said in your introductory remarks, trafficking predominantly exists because there is a market for it. And the market is in large part created by sex buyers. So, so we wanted to focus on that accountability. So the way it works is um, if police are doing... Uh, investigations and arrests for this kind of uh, criminal activity, then participants, if they are eligible, get referred to that program. And there's usually uh, a fee that people have to pay as well as really listening to uh, some survivors, to people who have been in the program, as well as presentations by law enforcement, by the police uh, and different community activists uh, to talk about the connection between sexual exploitation and trafficking, sex buying, um, there's usually a counselor who does a presentation, again, on the topic of how do you deal with your own things uh, in, in a more personal way, you know, whether it's your mental health or your physical health or your relationship issues or you're not happy in your relationship, you know, those kinds of things. So it's very, it's fairly intense, but I've seen a lot of men sort of opening their eyes to this, that this isn't just like a little hobby between two consenting adults but there's a lot of things that go into it that men need to understand. Yeah. And Hennis, did I understand you correctly when you talked about the fact that this program, there's a fee for it? Yeah. Yeah. So there is a fee that uh, people have to pay, which is partly to cover the cost, but partly also to support uh, outreach work that is being done by the Salvation Army to uh, women and, and individuals that are that are exploited. Yeah. So, Hannes, just to sort of take a practical look at this, those are amazing programs. One of the areas that I'd like to get your thoughts on, and because you've seen this, just to share what you've seen and how it does work, is that any person, in this case, we're talking about men who are involved in the exploitation of sexual human trafficking. If somebody were to come forward, that's something pretty brave for somebody to come forward and say, I've got this issue that I'm dealing with. I mean, we need to applaud them. But society and and I think the just the general feeling of anybody that to, that admits they've got that kind of a problem publicly to somebody else. Have you seen barriers that will break that down to make it easier for somebody to say, I know I've got a problem. I understand I've got a problem, but I cannot get the courage to go forward because I'm embarrassed if ha this happens to become public. You know, during the time that I was working in this program, 99% of the men were referred by the police or by the justice system. There was very few that reached out individually on their own volition. Now, one thing that I will say is I've, I've talked to counselors and therapists that focus specifically on, you know, sexual related issues so they would deal with more than just somebody being engaged in prostitution or those kinds of things. And, and most of the time, what the, the therapist has told me is folks will generally only reach out if either their partner has found out 
or somehow it impacts their lives, maybe their jobs or so. There has to be a certain level of hardship, if I may say it that way, or, or impact on the, on the family, on the partner, on work, where men or, or people then feel like the need to, okay, now I need to address something like this. Otherwise, you're right. I think the hurdle to overcome the own internal, you know, whether it be shame or guilt, or even just maybe not really wanting to acknowledge this is is very hard for people to come forward. Uh, is very very hard, and like you said, there's a, a sense of stigma around that, and I think a lack of places where people can turn to other than maybe a, a counselor that would be able to to deal with that, right? But I think this is where we, you know, need to maybe do a better job as a community and as a society because. The folks are among us. And when you look at situations where people have re- or the police have arrested men, like they could probably be scrolling online and focus on enforcement on the street and they could do this nonstop. Like that's how large the issue is. And when you talk to police uh, officers within the counter exploitation unit, they say it's a pretty massive problem, you know. Um, so how do we do that uh, as a society? That's, that's where we were trying to, to get some of that traction going to say, hey, it is a criminal offense, but we are here to help you uh, in some ways, not to, to diminish your accountability, but to say something needs to be done about this as well. But I think we also as a society need to take a different approach and say, this is not okay. You know, we cannot allow 15 and 16 or even 20 year olds who are struggling to be exploited by people who use them for their own personal advantage. And unfortunately, over the last couple of years, just to give you some examples, Tina Fontaine was a young indigenous girl, 15 years old, was found uh, in the Red River here in 2014, wrapped in a duvet cover with a stone, like, like somebody did really horrible things to her. And prior to her death, and this was later confirmed by the police as well as the Manitoba Advocate for for Children and Youth, one of the suspects that was a suspect in in her murder case offered this young indigenous girl money for sex because he wanted to to get over a fight with his wife. This is stated in a report from Macy from the Advocate's Office. And so this is not okay. And this is unfortunately not the only case. We have multiple cases for for youth as well as adults where, where this is a reality. And I, th- I find this unacceptable, you know, both as a as a human being as as well as a man. That can we as a society tolerate that? I don't think so. In my point, I can't. Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree. It's a horrific case, and you know, is another issue that just happened here with the spotlight on Winnipeg, and it was a national story for the obvious reasons. It was it was just horrific. Hannes, I know you've done research, and I'm going to ask you kind of a two part question. So. Some of the research on, and you've touched on some of these, but just to bring it back, why do men buy sex? So what's the research show on that? And then perhaps more importantly, how do you use education to discourage that? So when it comes to the research, first of all, there isn't a whole lot on that topic, particularly here in Canada. There's a couple of uh, articles and research initiatives that I found in the US. So over the years working in this program, we would usually ask at the beginning of our workshop with the men who had been arrested for purchasing sexual services, why do men do that? And so over the years, we we collected that information and those answers. And it could be anything from 
people being frustrated, stressed, or bored. Uh, some people are lonely, um, have poor self-esteem. Some do it for the reason because there's no commitment in the relationship. So they're not looking to be, you know, in a relationship that requires time and effort uh, and, and building that relationship. Some people are terrified of an emotional connection. They're just looking for that physical intimacy. I think the effect of pornography plays an increasing role in this. Pornography is now available on any device, you know, for any age, if children or youth have access to to the internet, um, I think that shapes their view of uh, sexuality as well. And unfortunately, it is increasingly violent and degrading, particularly degrading towards women. Like I mentioned, the uh, challenges in, in relationships, but also I think sometimes I, I've seen men who uh, had experienced uh, physical or, or emotional or sexual abuse as a child as well, that then uh, sort of changes their their views on on some of these things. And then on the other spectrum, uh, sort of at the end, there is for some people a sense of control and dominance that they want to exert over people. And those are generally the really the dangerous ones because they do not care about the well-being of the others. It's just about them. And there's a level of violence um, and abuse that is really horrific. I think that group is the smallest one. I think the regular biggest group is really people using it as sort of a, a mechanism to to deal with their own internal stressors or or just an escape sometimes as well. So many people have for different uh, reasons for that. But helping men understand this, I think, is is one way. It's not the only way, but it's is one way of reaching them and saying, hey, listen, this isn't just bad for somebody else, especially if they're exploited or trafficked, but this has an impact on you as well. And when we look at some of the stats, both from uh, the program here in Winnipeg, as well as in the States, about half of the men are married. So they're in a relationship, right? What does this do to their intimate partner, to their girlfriend or their wives or their partner? We have to look at that as well. And that's often a group that is uh, even less talked about. How does this impact uh, somebody that this person is in a relationship with? So Hennis, let me just explore with you for a moment. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of programs. You know, Empower Men is the you're the lead project lead on that. Can you sort of share some of the positives that you've seen out of this that you can say that we know this works? You know, there's still lots of work to be done, but but we've got real actual sort of proof uh, statistics that there are programs that can work. And I'd like to talk about that. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about what are some of those projects that anybody listening to this. If they want to either get involved or help out, where are they? So first question, give us a sense of something that you would say, in my capacity for what I do for Empower Men, I can tell you that I've seen positives and here are some of them. I think two things. The first part of my answer goes back to the work that I was doing directly with the men. And this is when men realize and when men hear stories of survivors, for example, when they share their personal stories of how they ended up in the sex industry, how they got there. And often it involves you know, challenges at home, sometimes abuse and violence. And those stories that are direct, that are raw, and that come from people who, who were exploited um, and, and hearing those stories from the women and having to look the survivor in the eye, you know, when we did those workshops, that was extremely powerful uh, in that regard. 
because they they realize this isn't just some some object that I can you know pay whatever twenty or fifty dollars for, but this is a human being, right? And they have to understand and hear their reasoning for that. You know that it wasn't because well they enjoy sex so much or they just like to make easy money like that, right? Some of those misconceptions get busted in that. So I think that works for some, obviously not for everybody, but I think it, it puts some perspective on that. And in regards to, for example, our online engagement is, I think sometimes the feedback that we've gotten is, you know, thanks for providing this information and for talking to me because I didn't know where I was going to go with it. I didn't know who to reach out to. And there's a sense of desperation for some of the men because they realize, well, they have a sense that it may not be really good for them either. It might give them temporary relief, but it's not good for their own who they want to be, basically, right? So we've uh, heard positive feedbacks on that. And I think just having somebody to listen to without sort of right away being judgmental or dismissive of their reasons, but trying to listen, to understand, and then to say, okay, what can you do different, right? And is this who you want to be? Are these the values that you espouse to, to live, right? So that, I think, is, is positive. And granted, we, we don't reach everybody with, with this approach. And for some, I think, knowing that uh, law enforcement and police are enforcing the laws, I think, is important as well. Because I think that sends another message that we as a community, through the work of the police and the justice system, which is by no means perfect in any way, shape or form, but but sends a message that say, this is not okay. And, and you need to really reconsider this. Here's an option for this, but we do not tolerate that. And recently there was a court decision from the Manitoba Court of Appeal that increased a sentencing from 15 months to five years of somebody who had sexually exploited a 16-year-old indigenous girl with child welfare infor- uh, involvement. And the Court of Appeal said, we need to send a stronger message that exploiting, in this case, it was a youth, but I would include adults in this as well, that this is not okay. So there was a strong message uh, sent by that. The decision came out about a year and a half ago. So I think there are some promising uh, aspects to it, but as usual, there's there's more than one activity and 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 one approach that we need to take that on this but i think as a as a society we need to really change how we view that you know and again i'm i'm putting this back on us as men to say what can we do in terms of our leadership as well yeah i think it's important i was going to ask you what are the criminal charges or the criminal convictions of somebody who uh, gets involved in the sexual exploitation of people and you said that the court of appeal it was 12 months and you talked you talked about a specific yeah 15 months it was 15 months at that point but they for this particular individual to 5 yeah, years yeah they raised it to 5 years so the crown appealed the decision from sort of the lower court and then the court of appeal increased the sentence from 15, 15 months, months to, to 5, five years. years right and in in the description um, and the reasoning was very clear around that that this is not acceptable. And here's why, right? Because of the vulnerability of the victim, because of the age, the involvement in the child welfare system, all of those things. So I think that sends a strong message to that. Now, I know that people don't necessarily go online and and read those court verdicts, but I think it shows a message to the community and to law enforcement 
and other people involved that we don't want to tolerate that on that level. Do you know the judge uh, for the Court of Appeal? Was that a man or a woman that uh, extended that from 15 months to five years? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there was at least uh, there was a th- three judges and I believe two were women and one man, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But I know at least one woman was part of that uh, group. Yeah, you're okay. And it's one of the questions I asked is, you know, if people want to get help, if they're looking for assistance or they want to find out quietly, maybe as opposed to something that's too public, how might somebody get assistance? People can get in touch with us through our website, uh, empowermen.ca and men with M-E-N, uh, so the plural form, um, empowermen.ca. People can go there. There's a contact button that people can uh, contact us if it's through an email. Um, there's also a phone number on there. And it could be the first start of uh, you know a conversation as well as then seeing, okay, what what services are available Right now, we're not in a position to offer direct counseling. We're hoping to start with that uh, in the future. But we can certainly uh, have a conversation anonymously uh, if people decide to do that to see uh, how can we support this person uh, as well and take it from there. If people are interested in just finding out more about it, whether it's this topic or our work, they can also go onto the website and reach out to us. So we really are interested in engaging with the community. We're happy to do presentations to teams or to agencies. We're very happy to do that and and discuss this a little bit more. Just give us your website one more time. I'll put it in the show notes, but do the website and a phone number, please, Hannes. So the the website is uh, Empowermen, so E-M-P-O-W-E-R-M-E-N.ca, empowermen.ca. And uh, that would be the best way to to get in t- uh, get in touch with us. Is there a phone number as well if they wanted to call? The best way is really through the website. That's the the best way. So yeah, great. Well, I have a little editorial group of uh, wonderful people that uh, help give me advice about who to get on the podcast. And when your name came up, I was uh, intrigued because most focus on sexual exploitation, rightly so, is on the victims. How do you help these victims who are just put in awful, awful positions? But the fact that you're taking a different approach to really look at empowering men and trying to you know, discourage them from being sex buyers, to discourage them for getting involved in sexual exploitation, I think is uh, an amazing project. And I'm delighted that you were able to spend a bit of time sort of explaining what it is you're doing, the importance of it, and how people, if they want to get more information, can go to your website, empowermen.ca, to find out more about it. And again, that could be not necessarily somebody who feels they're an addict, which would be a great spot, but also if there's organizations who would say, we'd love to get a presentation, we'd love to hear more about what it is you're doing, they could also go to your website, and that could be something that uh, that you offer. Yeah, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I have to give credit to a lot of the organizations that have been in this field. And I mentioned this at the beginning. So the Mama, Mama Wichita Center, which we fall under. So we're part of that, even though we have our own website um, and, and name, but we are part of the Mama Wichita Center. Kani Kanichuk is another indigenous organization here, the Clan Mothers, Joy Smith Foundation. So I'm giving credit to all of those uh, incredible folks who have worked there. 
And uh, I think, you know, we're always interested in partnerships and we've worked together with Joy Smith Foundations on, on some events as well as the Kani Kanichak. So always interested to further the conversation. And we want to do this in a collaborative way because we believe in that, because it, it really is an issue, I think, that requires us as a community to come together. And so we're, we're strong on that. And thank you, Stuart, for reaching out uh, and talking to me. Uh, it's a pleasure having those conversations. Yeah, well, you and your team and the people that you recognized, uh, Hannes Dolce, Project Lead for Empower Men.ca. It's just important that people get a sense that there are people like you and others in organizations that are really trying to strive to improve the, the lives of those people who have suffered through sexual exploitation by going right to the source, and that is the purchaser. And I think those stats that I said at the beginning were mind-boggling. So I would just say to you, uh, Hannah Stoltz, thank you for taking some time today. Thank you for the great work that you and your team do and look forward to an opportunity to catch up with you in the future. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for your work on human rights and on interviewing different folks from different people, uh, including us. And like I said, always a pleasure to to do those kinds of things. So thank you very much. All right. All the best. Take care. Thanks for listening to Humans on Rights. A transcript of this episode is available by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by Buffy Davey. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.